Good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, it is a joy to be with you this morning to celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what Christmas is all about. It's about God coming to us in the flesh. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power who laid the foundations of the earth with the Father and who commands the seas and they obey. This person became a man. He became one of us. So to say that the incarnation, God becoming man, is a miracle is, I would say, a bit of an understatement. It's not only a miracle but a great mystery that God would lower himself in humility to be born of a virgin and in a stable, mind you. During his time on earth, Jesus didn't have riches. He didn't have power in the way that we think of power. He was not raised in Jerusalem under the intellectual elites of the day. He was raised in a tiny rural town called Nazareth, and he was the son of a carpenter. He didn't climb the political ranks during his adulthood or achieve great military conquests. Uh, We actually don't really know much of what he did at all for the first 30 years of his life. But for three years, he traveled with 12 men, half of whom we don't really know anything about either. The ones we do know about are really not that impressive. Teaching with authority and performing miracles, he entered Jerusalem not on a horse, but on a donkey. And he was betrayed by one of his very own disciples. How strange is it to rehearse the story of Jesus sometimes? There are many things about Jesus that are hard to grapple with. Many things that make faith in Christ sometimes just seem outrageous. But our sermon text this morning argues something else. The Apostle Paul argues that faith in Christ Jesus is totally reasonable and is in fact to be presented before all people in humility. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, which you can find on page 991 of the Bibles provided underneath the seats. Uh, And and if you're visiting and you don't have a personal Bible that you can read at home, feel free to just take one of the black Bibles underneath the seats as our gift to you. Merry Christmas. Uh, We would love for you to have your own copy of God's Word. We believe that He has spoken to us through it that it is inspired by His Spirit, written through human authors, uh, and, and is without error in everything it intends to communicate. So we think there is nothing more important than being able to read God's Word yourself with your own eyes. 1 Timothy 1.15, it says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I don't know how many Christmas Eve services or Christmas Day services you've been to. I've at least been to one every year of my life that I know of, possibly more than that. But to rehearse the story of Christ's birth... It is a momentous moment in history, told with all fondness during this season, as it should be. But the reality is, 
even while we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus, His birth is not really worth celebrating if we don't know the reason why He came. And that's why I decided to preach on this verse on Christmas Day, because of the clarity with which Paul communicates and the importance of Christ's coming to his disciple, Timothy. Uh, Just to give you a a brief bit of context, the Apostle Paul considered Timothy uh, to be like a son to him. He calls him a child of the faith in verse 2 of chapter 1. Uh, We know that others thought highly of Timothy because they recommended or referred him to Paul on one of his journeys. And we know that he was a young man because Paul exhorts him uh, not to let others look down on him for his youth, but instead to set an example for other believers by his speech and his conduct, his love, faith, and purity. The Apostle Paul, who was trained by the highest kind of education available, who had been a Pharisee among Pharisees, he considered young Timothy's faith in Christ to be of the utmost importance. So I submit to you this morning that young or old, new to Christianity or not, there can be nothing more important than what you believe about Jesus and why he came. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Let's think about that for a moment. What does it mean to say that something is trustworthy? I have a, uh, a silly illustration. For those of you who have known me for the last five to seven years, you will know that at all times I carry on my person one of these pens. This is a Pilot G2 pen, and it is my favorite pen. Uh, I use these pens. I don't lose them. I use them until they dry up, and then I go and buy more. And I do, in fact, receive these in my stockings as gifts. Uh, And by the way, Pilot does not know that I'm giving this glowing endorsement for this pen. I'm a .05 man, personally. Uh, If you know what I'm speaking about, I think this is the Goldilocks of ink thickness when it comes to writing. Uh, The pen, to me, is smooth. It's almost never dry unless I've used it up completely. It's plastic. But it has a little rubber grip to keep it from sliding out, not too heavy. It doesn't bleed ink or require a lot of maintenance like some other more expensive pens do. What am I getting at with all this? Time and time again, this pen has proved its usefulness to me. It has proven to be a reliable pen. And therefore, it is the only pen that I trust. It means that if you ask me for a pen, I will not give you this one. I'll look for a different one, most likely. Well, I think this is what Paul means when he's talking about something being trustworthy. He's talking about reliability. For the Apostle Paul, this is a statement about what Jesus came to do and how trusting in Jesus is reliable because Jesus is not going to let you down. I understand that we live in a world full of suspicion. Everybody is suspicious of everything. Everybody wants proof of something. You may not have very many things or even people yourself that you trust in. And in some ways I understand that. Because we live in a sinfully broken world. People will let you down. The reality is not everyone is trustworthy. 
But there is one person that you can trust. There is one person who never lies, but who always delivers. Who has followed through on every single promise he's ever made. And that person is the God of the Bible. He who promised eternal life to those who believe in His Son. And Paul's not only using... He's not only basing this trustworthiness of his faith in the character of God, but in the history of faithfulness as well. Paul himself has experienced personally the delivering power of God in his own life. There could not have been a greater opponent to Christ than Paul. His name was Saul at the time. Jesus appeared to him and softened his heart to repentance and faith. And so he experienced immense, total life change. He's also witnessed this change in the lives of others, like Timothy, God's work in his life. Which is why he can boldly say that faith in Christ's death to save sinners is worthy of our trust. To have trust or to have faith in is to rely on, to depend on. Friends, I want you to remember this morning that Jesus is dependable. He is more dependable than anything else we will ever experience in this world. He's the only one who is able to save. And the Lord has promised again and again that He is steadfast and merciful. And we have the promise that He will, bring, he will not begin a work without bringing it to completion. Everything else in this world will expire. But not these words. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this saying is as trustworthy today as at the time that Paul wrote it with his own hand to Timothy. So how do you decide in your own life what things are worthy of your trust and what things are not? Most of the time, at least when it comes to shopping, we read reviews, don't we? We want to make sure that the thing we're buying doesn't just stop working immediately. We want to make sure it doesn't arrive in pieces or that the company has good customer service so we can work with them if we need to. So if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic of Christianity, first, uh, let me just thank you for being here. We're so glad you're here. You are welcome to come anytime. Let me just encourage you to examine God's Word for yourself and use your own judgments to decide whether or not the God of the Bible is trustworthy or is reliable. And to the members of FBC, do you realize that Our lives are like living reviews for Jesus. Look at what Paul says in the very next verse, verse 16. He says, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Meaning that the way that we live and speak and make decisions should testify to the world that we belong to Jesus. Our peace and our joy and contentment should tell others something about the hope that we have in Christ. That we not only believe God is reliable, but we have experienced that reliability and dependability in our own lives. It goes without saying, but if we want to convince other people that God is trustworthy that the message of the gospel is trustworthy, then we must have the reputation ourselves of being trustworthy people. Whether you're a student or a neighbor or an employee or a parent 
wherever you are, our lives should be a testimony to the Lord's faithfulness to us. We should work hard to be the kind of people that show up in each other's lives because we worship a God who is trustworthy. What are people to think of God if the Christians they know are not trustworthy? What conclusion do you think they'll come to about the God that we worship? Do a self-diagnosis sometime and ask yourself if others, and especially those outside the church, consider you to be a trustworthy and an honest person. And why or why not? And if not, what are some things that you can do to change that? This message of Christ's coming and His mission to save sinners is not just something that we think about once a year at Christmas. It is the message that we ourselves live by. And that's why Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You cannot partially accept this message. It must be total and complete acceptance. You can't simply say that Jesus came into the world, but not to save sinners. That is to reject the entire message. Because the message of Christianity has never been only that Jesus came into the world. It has always been that God sent His Son into the world so that whoever believed in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This was the plan made by God before the foundations were laid. It was recorded all the way back in the garden, as we read from Genesis 3 earlier in the service. He is the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the snake. Jesus, therefore, has always been God's plan to redeem the world from the brokenness of the fall. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners assumes that people need saving. And it assumes that we are sinners. And this is a rather obvious point, but... Let us never graze over it without remembering how egregious our sin is before God. With every lush field of grass, there is dirt underneath it. We must never forget the reason for Christ's coming when we think about the Incarnation. What else would require such a costly sacrifice than a great offense against our Maker? And we would do well to remember that it was Jesus that came to us and not the other way around. That it was His initiative, His doing. By His stripes we have been healed, and upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus made Himself low so that we could be raised up with Him in glory. It was while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. The message of the cross beckons everyone who hears to come to Jesus in faith. We must turn to Jesus and submit to His Lordship, but we cannot forget that it would not be possible even to do just that had He not come down to us first. This is why we have no room to boast. Because our salvation is not dependent on our own efforts or our own logic or our own education. It's not dependent on our emotions or our maturity or our achievements. Our salvation comes completely from something other than ourselves. By grace we have been saved, not of works, so that no man may boast, Ephesians 2. So when you think about Jesus as a baby, remember that He put on frailty for you. 
that in his weakness, he did what we in our strongest moments could never do. He obeyed God perfectly, and he gave up his life for us. Mark 10.45 says, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, I don't know if you noticed, uh, we normally say Jesus Christ, and here Paul says Christ Jesus. And I don't know if that sounds strange to you or you thought anything of it. I didn't think much of it at first. But the word order is actually important because it emphasizes that Jesus' identity and role primarily is the Christ or the Messiah or the Anointed One. The Messiah Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That definition of Messiah and Anointed One hints at His calling to redeem His people. And as the Father sent the Son into the world, so now the Son sends us into the world to preach the good news of His coming. What does Paul mean by the last little bit in this verse? Of whom I am the foremost. Why not just stop after saying, Christ came into the world to save sinners? Well, the reason he calls himself the foremost sinner is because he truly believes that he was the foremost sinner. It's like saying the greatest or the most prominent sinner. If there was such a thing as a naughty and nice list, Paul is saying that he is number one on the naughty list. Okay, Just look at how he summarizes his life before becoming a Christian in verse 13. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He blasphemed, meaning he called the very works of God evil and wicked. He went out of his way to punish Christians with physical violence. Uh, The very first Christian martyr we even know of is Stephen. He was stoned in Acts 8. And Luke describes that nearby was Saul giving approval. Same Saul who later became Paul in the next few chapters. He was utterly opposed to Jesus. Could there be a greater sinner? Could there be anyone less deserving of God's mercy? That's the point. That's the reason Paul calls himself the foremost sinner. He wants others to know that no matter how great your sin is, there is more mercy found in Christ for all those who repent and trust in Him. There is no sin or way of living that God is not strong enough to overcome to forgive you because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Notice, too, just the, the universality of this statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the Bible is clear in a number of places that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I don't even think that I need to mention many of those. If you're listening, search your own heart and ask yourself if you can legitimately say that you're not a sinner. We all know that we are. Jesus did not come to save a certain kind of sinner. He did not come only to save mild sinners, or only severe sinners, or only rich sinners, or poor sinners, or American sinners. This is a a universal statement, just referring to people. He came to save sinners, which means if you are one, Jesus' sacrifice can apply to you. 
Friend, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and you're here this morning exploring the claims of Christianity, consider your standing before God. Consider repenting of your unbelief and trusting in Him, the only one whose works can save you, Jesus Christ. He didn't come to save a certain kind of person. He came to save any sinner that believes in His death and resurrection and confesses Him as Lord. And if you have any questions about what that means or what that might look like for you or what that's looked like for me or someone else in this church, uh, feel free to ask me any questions you want at the door. I would love to explain what it means to become a Christian for you and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The message of the gospel requires our attention to sin. It requires we acknowledge that we are sinners and that it is God's power alone that saves us. That's why we too can share the message of Christ's forgiveness with humility. No one likes to be called sinners. I don't. It's awkward sometimes. It's even more awkward to call other people sinners. But it's necessary. Because apart from sin in the world, why would Jesus come? And why come in the weakness of human flesh? If you shrink from the reason that Jesus came, that is to save sinners, then you rob Jesus of the glorious message of his love and his mercy and his sacrifice and his power over sin and death. It's like taking a glass of the finest, most expensive wine in the world and pouring a gallon of water in it. It's like tearing out the pages of the greatest novel ever written so that all that remains is just the cover and the back. The fact that we are sinners in need of saving is not a weakness of the Christian message. It's the very core of it. It's the engine that powers the whole vehicle of Christianity. So brothers and sisters, do not shy away from the message of Christ coming to save sinners because it's the very thing that makes Christ's birth so significant. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's amazing, isn't it? that the Savior of the world would enter into the world through birth as an infant. We are around infants. We have infants in this church. We know how helpless they are. They would not survive without us. But Christ made himself the least on earth. As far as I know, there's no shortage of fiery chariots in heaven. Elijah got one, so why wouldn't the Son of Man... But instead, he came, he became one of us. He became one of us in our weakest and most vulnerable states. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this about the birth of Jesus. When thinking about him laying in a manger as a helpless infant, he said, those little hands will one day grasp the scepter of universal empire. Those little arms will one day grapple with the monster death and destroy it. Those little feet shall tread on the serpent's neck and crush that old deceiver's head. Yes, and that little tongue, which has not yet learned to articulate a word, shall before long pour from his sweet lips such streams of eloquence as shall fertilize the minds of the whole human race and infuse his teaching into the literature of the world. And again, a little while, 
And that tongue shall produce the judgments of heaven on the destinies of all mankind. We have all thought it wonderful that the God of glory should stoop so low. But we shall one day think it more wonderful that the man of sorrows should be exalted so high. Earth could find no place to base for him. Heaven will scarcely find a place lofty enough for him. Thou who is rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake, became poor. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so when you think about Jesus in the manger and the nativity scenes that you see, don't think of him only as a baby, but as everything he came to be for us. Not just as Jesus, but as Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning because of the love of your Son shown to us. We praise you because we are not deserving of your love, yet you loved us anyway. We praise you because you have made the message of the gospel clear to us through servants like the Apostle Paul and Timothy. We praise you for revealing yourself to us and by your Spirit enabling us to respond in faith. Help us to live by this faith. Help us to trust in you with an unwavering faith. Help us in our weakness, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.